0: Welcome to the 61st episode of the New Ventures podcast. I'm your host Sanjoy Sanyal, the founder of Regain Paradise, a boutique climate finance firm, and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. Along with my co-host Professor Jaydeep Prabhu, I host this series of podcasts to help explore the links between climate change and food security.
1: Thank you, Sanjay. Really delighted to be doing this with you and with our guest today.
0: And our guest for today is. Hanman Yip, the Singapore Chair of Tiger21, a network of ultra net individuals and family office members. That's obviously impressive enough. But what is important for our conversation is that he has invested in alternative protein and is an agri and food tech expert in think tanks, companies, and investment funds. Welcome, Hanman.
2: Thank you, Sanjoy, and thank you for inviting me here today.
1: Onman, I'd like to start by asking you a question about your background. Could you tell us a bit about your education and early career?
2: I was born in Singapore, educated here and in the US. I spent a big part of my life working in various parts of Asia. I'm an engineer by training and I started my career with multinational companies, specifically in the telecom and IT segment and then move on to help Asian family-owned businesses. And one of them was acquired by a large state-owned private equity fund. So from that point, I move into different roles, including post-M&A or merger and acquisition uh, integration, starting with growing new businesses and turning around struggling ones in various parts of Asia. And in 2016, I was asked by the um, Singapore and Chinese government to run the food zone in the rural part of um, China. And that was when I learned about food and agriculture, including how sustainable the food production system is. And that laid the foundation for me starting and in investing in the agri-tech and the food tech uh, space.
0: But that is where your interest in food started. Maybe you want to reflect back a little bit in those years and then tell us how it started from agriculture to alternative protein yeah so
2: when the food tech startup uh, beyond Meat went ipo i think it's in night 2019 i started getting involved as a community builder in the agri-food tech space what i did was connecting stakeholders including singapore government regulators, startups and also investors as we built the ecosystem. And naturally as a big advocate in this space, I became an investor myself. Soon after family offices, venture capital funds and just normal investors started to approach me for advice and co-investments, opportunities, and that eventually led me to start a $50 million growth stage uh, cellular agriculture fund just a year ago. So over those years, I went on and expanded the scope to include climate tech, decarbonization, and I became a certified ESG investor uh, just last year. And along the way, I got invited as an expert for a European-based think tank called the Singularity Group based out of Zurich. Their focus is identifying innovative companies uh, in various parts of listed companies. And I also consult for various uh, corporates, VC, including one that manages 110 billion euro of assets.
0: That's really interesting, and I'm sure our audience is going to wait very eagerly to for your insights. I'm going to start you know, just by giving them a quick overview alternate food industry, or what I call the new food industry, it has, in my opinion, three major subsectors. One is the plant-based subsector, which is using plant-based ingredients. And then what I call the cell-based meat, which is basically growing meat from an animal cell and without the whole animal. And then what is called precision fermentation, which is basically using microorganisms. I'm going to ask you, is this understanding of mine right? Now, what do you think about this classification? Yeah,
2: generally speaking, there are five main sectors. Um, like you said, plant-based protein, precision fermentation protein, cellular agriculture or cell-based protein. There are three others, which includes mycoprotein, insect proteins and microalgae proteins. But the most widely known are the first three that you mentioned.
0: Hanman, because those two I didn't define, maybe you would like to just give our audience a little bit of a definition of those subsectors.
2: Yeah. So, microproteins essentially is focusing on fungi, fungi, mushroom. Yeah. So, the most famous one we probably know, especially in the UK, would be corn. So, mushrooms, cells, put them in a bioreactor, bath them in in nutrients and they convert these nutrients glucose especially into proteins and you can harvest them in 48 hours and make them into delicious uh, plant-based meat insect proteins uh, essentially uh, we grow like black soldier flies and feed them with organic waste they convert they grow and then we harvest them dry them make them into insect powders which is used as additive into uh, animal feed And some companies are promoting them as uh, food for humans and pets as well. Microalgae essentially is growing algae in an enclosed environment. And again, with sunlight, uh, with nutrients, they convert these into protein that we can harvest.
1: Alman, I mean, this is all really very interesting to me as a marketing professor, because I'm always interested in how innovations are adopted by consumers. And I can see here there may be some drivers, some things that people find attractive about these new types of food, but there might also be some barriers. So I'm curious to know from you, which ones are most likely to be adopted? What are some of the barriers and so on?
2: Absolutely. You have accurately identified an area for investors like us. We always wanted to make sure that we stick to the basics, which is exactly what you just said. So just a bit of a background and observation over those years. So over the past few years, we have witnessed the rapid adoption of plant-based milk and uh, plant-based meat. With plant-based milk becoming a hot favourite, you probably notice, and I do, in many cities, when you walk into a cafe today, you'll find dairy-free milk options that offered alongside traditional dairy milk. Just a few years ago, it was very challenging to find dairy-free milk options for my coffee. But now you really have lots of choices. Besides the very popular oat milk, we even have soy milk, almond milk, and a lot more. So what's next? I believe that the precision fermentation-based foods and ingredients will be actually the next big things because, for example, you look at alternatives to egg whites, a company called Avery, alternatives to milk ingredients like whey, caseins, lactoferrin, and even uh, alternative materials such as leather, they could be produced by precision fermentation. Now, to go back to answering your questions or what are the barriers, it is now very clear that the barriers are essentially taste, nutrition, cost and availability now with that which is why the last sector i haven't mentioned would be cultivated meat or cellular agriculture it takes a bit longer for them to eventually be here but mainly because the technology barriers are a lot more complex and the regulatory compliance takes longer and consumer expectations are also higher but these three or four barriers need to be addressed before this industry can take off But I'm confident that when we will reach a point where consumers have a wide range of choices that align with their beliefs and values, and that would include cleaner product, more nutritious product, zero animal cruelty and minimum environmental impact. These are the end goals of what the consumer are looking for.
0: And it is interesting that you say that the plant-based meat has already made substantial progress because you're personally invested in some of the iconic names in that industry. Correct. Could you just tell us a little bit about the types of companies you invested in, what you saw in them and you did, and the progress they have made?
2: Yeah, so as a general rule of thumb, in the very early days, including myself and many others, they actually invested a lot earlier than myself. Was that the ultimate goal was to invest in order to influence and shape the outcome of the food tech ecosystem. Or you take a step back, essentially, we realized many of us realized, and that includes me after becoming involved in food and agriculture space was that the current food production system is not going to be able to meet the growing population. Me coming from a tech background, start looking at the food tech space. So. When we invest, the ultimate goal was to invest in order to influence and shape the outcome of that ecosystem and simultaneously addressing concerns related to climate change, health, and animal welfare. So if you look at that, Beyond Meat IPO in 2019, again, it became an almost an overnight success in the IPO. And with that, it caught the attention of many others. Then on plant-based itself, obviously, it's a lot. When I first looked at it as an Asian, we were, the Chinese, and many of us in Asia itself, we were grown up eating mock meat, for me, at home twice a month. And so to what we are not unfamiliar with this, it's just that we were wondering why would company making mock meat be valued at one time was also $2 US dollars. But then... The market accepts that, consumer went all the way out for it. So there is not too many technical barrier in terms of producing plant-based meat. So it is no surprise that they are the first one that kind of took off. If you look at it, Impossible are invested in Impossible Foods, Eat Just, Hungry Planet, Rebellious Foods, and a whole bunch of others. These are the early stage of early pioneers in offering plant-based meat protein, but the focus is on getting the taste of these plant-based meat products to taste as close to what the Western world are used to, in that case, a burger. So look at Impossible Impossible Foods. So Impossible Foods is known for inventing heme, which is a plant-based hemoglobin that with a lot of smart food scientists able to find a way to mimic The kind of bloodiness and the flavor of a beef burger without involving a cow. So that kind of opens up everybody's eyes. For Eat Just, Eat Just is very unique because it actually, I invested because it has two leading products in two different categories, namely the plant-based eggs and the cultivated chicken. And Rebellious Food and Hungry Planet, they're very early, prominent plant-based meat producer. Hungry Planet, for example, uh, when they first came out, they have six different skills compared to Beyond Meat, which is just having a a burger. If you look at uh, one more recent product called Lipid, Lipid is interesting. It is a producer of plant-based fats. And that's important because when added to plant-based meat itself, it enhances the taste profile of soy isolate that they use, and that allows them to avoid over-processing, ultra-processing of soy isolate in order to get close to the taste of the conventional meat.
1: So Hanun, I want to uh, just follow up on that uh, point you made about mock meat. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and why is it a tradition in some parts of Asia?
2: So mock meat is something that has been around for years, especially in Asia. It it is a term that is used for alternative meat product. If somebody doesn't feel like eating meat for because on that particular day, and many of the Chinese whose family are brought up in a way, Taoism, Buddhism, there are days that we don't eat meat. And so we use mock meat. I mean, essentially, it is created from plant-based protein to resemble the real taste and color and texture. The usual ingredients that we use is uh, soybean, wheat protein, tempeh, pea protein, and so on. So that technology has existed for uh, more than a thousand years in Asia. So that's mock meat.
1: So Hanman, uh, my next question is about precision fermentation and the companies you invest in that space. What do they do? What progress are they making?
2: One of the precision fermentation company that I would like to highlight as they are a leader in that particular category is a company called Avery. They specifically use the precision fermentation method to produce a quite replacement. What it does for precision fermentation is it uses a technology that we're familiar with, which is fermentation and fermentation is where you get wine, you get uh, your kimchi and so on, but do it in a very precise way. And this involves getting microbial organism modified them to produce just one particular ingredient. In this case is a quite. And once we select that strain of microbial organism, putting them in a bioreactor, feed with the right nutrients, then we can harvest them just like what we did for microprotein. The end product would be identical to the um, egg white itself or to the uh, milk ingredients product itself. That's what precision fermentation is Is all about. The difference is it doesn't involve, in this case for every, it doesn't involve having a chicken to lay an egg in order to get the egg white. And it's very scalable and it could be done in a very inexpensive way.
1: Hanran, I was uh, interested to know how expensive these products are because they sound like they would still be very lab-based and scaling them, industrializing them might be some distance away from that at the moment. I'm just curious to know your thoughts on that issue. Yes and no. So if you look at plan base, it's a lot quicker
2: to reach price parity and mass production for example microprotein corn has been doing it for decades and they are able to offer it in a very inexpensive way that the population in europe has been consuming for precision fermentation this sector just started to boom the past few years and a lot of technology and the technology that needs to be improved is here but hasn't fine-tuned for example in precision fermentation when we start scaling these products to provide food that are like costing few dollars per pound or per kg versus pharmaceutical product that are sold for hundreds of thousands of dollars per pound. Even the cost is the same. It's very different. So now the industry start looking at, okay, the technology is there proven in another industry and that will be pharmaceutical. And now we need to fine tune that, perhaps redesign the bioreactors such that they can actually produce the product in a cheap and healthy way. So it's already out of the lab, out of pilot, now is looking at mass production in a consistent manner. With that in mind, precision fermentation is required less technology innovation compared to cultivated meat, which requires a lot more. We look at this space between the two. We think precision fermentation product like alternative egg white, alternative ice cream, uh, or lactoferrin milk powder, they will arrive sooner compared to cultivated, which takes longer.
0: I mean, I understand the point that you make about precision fermentation versus cell-based meat, or what you call cultivated meat. And I understand also that cell-based meat will take a little time to come to the market. But that doesn't seem to have stopped you from making a few bets in the sector, is it?
2: (laughs) So I am not your usual investors that look at it and compare that with maybe time deposit or compare it with an ETF fund that expect a very consistent short-term return, short meaning three years, five years, and so on. There are a few investors like myself, essentially, we're looking at pretty long-term and also coming in early, which also means higher risk. But essentially, we're looking at addressing a big issue which is fixing the food production system which many of us think is already broken and at the same time uh, feed a growing population and one of the things that prompted me Besides getting exposed to the food and agriculture issues when I was up there running a food zone in China for China and Singapore was my children were at that age where they were able to debate and then ultimately won over issues like sustainability, concerns about animal, environmental, and, and so on. I'm not going to be the boomer that caused this. I'm going to be the solution to the problem that you face.
0: That's, of course, wonderful to hear that story about your motivation. But in the type of investments that you have made in Sell-Based Meat, are there one or two companies that you want to talk about?
2: There were two companies that I invested in very early, and that would be Good Meat, which is part of the Eat Just Holdings Company, as well as Upside. The good news is that they are the only two just a few months ago received USDA regulatory approval. So that's a big milestone and that's a big thing in this industry. I mean, if you look at it, it was just a few months ago that the whole industry celebrated the first cell-based burger, it, um, which was produced in a lab by Dr. Mark Post. And that burger itself cost $320,000. Fast forward to now, it's Still not costing like a few dollars per pound for the burger but it has come down significantly still not cheap enough but it has come down significantly and there are many areas that could be improved on because we are using a technology manufacturing facilities that is not fine-tuned for food they were all done to produce products that is selling at millions of dollars per pound versus need to get this down to like $2 or $2.80 per pound for chicken meat. So there's still a lot of uh, innovation and engineering work that needs to be done. I like to kind of compare this to the industry that i was involved in since i started work with the smartphone industry 30 years ago i sold my first motorola analog cell phones and it cost i believe three thousand us dollars basically deliver one service which is make a phone call but we had never thought that that phone today 30 years later, disrupted so many industries. And halfway through, the price just dropped drastically. Many things have to happen, including contract manufacturing, including chips making available to everybody. So the turning point or the tipping point for us is when we suddenly see that phones made out of Shenzhen that cost tens of dollars rather than thousands of dollars. So we see that the industry is heading towards that direction, but it's not going to take three years or five years. I mean, the cellular agriculture industry is maybe at most five years uh, old since the first day investors uh, invested in them. It will take a couple of decades before we reach that kind of level where it becomes really
0: mass. This is wonderful. And you have actually set the context for the questions that I wanted to ask you later about industry landscape. But just reflecting back on what you said, there are six sectors on of the industry. Three of them are a little bit more prominent. Among them, plant-based meat has been around for the longest time. I do want to remind our audience the point that Han Moon made about Asians with certain faith-based objectives eating plant-based meat for a long, long time and the plant-based industry in some ways has uh, ridden that consumer preference and has got products out in the market all over the world the precision fermentation industry according to you hanman the second one that is on the line and there i think that what i'm interestingly taking away is the fact that manufacturing processes will will be derived from the pharmaceutical industry to drive costs down to bring about more scalability. And Jaydeep, I'm kind of reminded of uh, your work around the pharmaceutical industry and their uh, low-cost innovations that you have written about in your book as well. And in the cell-based meat, again, just to remind our audience, this is not an industry which has been there for a long time. It's just a five-year industry. And that is the perfect segue from me to ask you, you have been uh, writing a lot about the slowdown in the investments this year. Just reflect on this from the point of view of of the fact that the industry is really nascent. And what is your message for investors?
2: Yeah, that's a very, very good reminder. I mean, not all investors are like us. When we came in, it was very mission-driven, purpose-focused. Over the past three years i would say when we first came in as i mentioned we were all basically starry eyes we're going to solve the world problem but then slowly we're getting a lot, a lot of investors a lot of concern i would say concern just individual citizens of this planet earth and say hey we want this is so cool we also want to get invested and probably see at the peak of it maybe two years ago people that, that do not spend too much time in this space, jump in and thinking that they could make a very good return without understanding that this industry, like many of the industry, including the dot-com industry, the internet industry, it takes decades. So the during that process, we have seen, and I personally got involved raising fund for startups that we were able to get in our series A tens of million dollars of capital raise on the back of almost half a billion dollars valuation without revenue and without product. This is where we enter into a typical, the Gartner hype cycle. And then now, just 18 months later, things are a lot more realistic right now in terms of valuation, in terms of willingness to negotiate from the perspective of the founders and the companies. And for the investors, we think, especially for us, which is looking at long-term, we think it's a great time to filter out those great companies, companies that has the potential, very focused on meeting milestones, which is getting the product out, which is scaling it up and uh, focusing on fulfilling those customer orders that they have taken. So, And we love it. And again, when we look at this, is part of the hype circle. All major innovation will go through this cycle. And the next couple of cycles, probably be able to work with startups, the founders to focus on what is important and then less noise, more time to deliver our product. But again, for the investors who came in without a lot of knowledge and with different type of expectations, this is just part and parcel of the hype cycle. It will take a lot more time than they expect to reach the point where it becomes an alternative or becomes mass enough where the consumer would be able to pick it without worrying about making sacrifices.
1: I wonder, Hanman, if you could tell us a little bit about comparing the plant-based meat industry with cultivated meat and precision fermentation. Where are they in terms of their market readiness, technology risk, barriers to entry, etc.?
2: So the plant-based is the first to get into this and the market entry barrier is lower than cell-based for obvious reasons. Even with that, they were and there are still some entry barriers, for example, R&D innovations. So they are still working hard to develop high-quality plant-based meat products that can replicate as close to the taste and texture of traditional animal-based meats. One of the attempts that the industry made kind of didn't go well was ultra-processing. And there was a big pushback a year or two ago about some of the meat that has a whole list of ingredients that they could not recognize. To address that, we're beginning to see companies, like I mentioned before, Lipid, which is a plant-based fat company that essentially mimic the taste of fat. We realized that at the end of the day, flavor comes from fat. So instead of processing it with more additive and and stuff, we focus on replacing the fat. And there's also another attempt, which is getting more popular, which is essentially cultivated fat itself. So for example, bacon, there was a company that again, I invested in as well that decided to spend two years of their time focusing on identifying fat cells, developing them, and then add them to their plant-based bacon. And it became an overnight success because it turns out that our brain is kind of programmed to what is the taste of a bacon is light and it's that fat that immediately tells us that oh yeah this is bacon so by adding i think the number that they i was told was about 20 percent of animal fat cultivated fat to plant-based product it became very popular so that addresses the ultra processing concern product scaling i think there's still a lot can be done to get the manufacturing facilities to be able to produce very inexpensive, very consistent, high quality, plant-based meat product. Distribution and branding. After all, this product is, is a food product. And, you know, just because you have a good and low-cost product, you still need to go through the traditional distribution channel, supply chain, and so on. And you have to work with the big food company. So that's more of a business uh, issue. Distribution, branding, regulatory compliance, I think, There's still regulatory concerns over here. The regulatory bodies are all catching up with all this novel food, laboring, and so on. Now, cultivated meat is a lot more complex, and that also includes the precision fermentation industry. Number one, cost reduction, definitely. And this is the main focus uh, for this industry is to get the cost down to maybe not parity as a first step close to the premium product that they have. And then eventually it has to be reaching price parity and lower before you can see a significant number of consumer willing to try and switch permanently. So, reduction of the cost involves in scaling up. Uh, We talk about redesigning the bioprocessing, the, the bioreactors. There's also the nutrients. So, the whole cultivated meat process involves extracting a cell from whether a chicken or a cow and then have them Put in a bioreactor filled with nutrients. And that nutrients, a big portion of it is the the media, the culture media itself. And you need to have the right combination and the right cell to produce in quantity in a very consistent manner such that the product became the real meat itself. The media development is also another area. And there are a lot of startups focusing on addressing this issue, fortunately for us. And uh, the next product would be cells when they grow in maybe depending on who you talk to four to six weeks or even a a week or days they are just cells lots of cells when you harvest them to make them into a burger is probably relatively easier before we go into that the cells we will also need to get the cells to differentiate themselves so one single cell differentiate themselves to fat differentiate themselves to muscle so and different types of fats different type of muscles so that you can produce or replicate the kind of uh, stick that you want them to be Now, that involves when you have the fat cells, you have the muscle cells, you need to get them to form into a 3D structure so that they can resemble a whole cut. That's a totally different uh, innovation as well, requiring different disciplines from the scientific world to work on it. So those are the technical challenges. Can it be done? Yes, because... This technology has been out there for a long time. It's just focusing them and getting them done in commercial manner. Now, once this is done, you have the regulatory approval. The regulatory agency around the world, this is so new. Nobody knows what it is. So the industry, the the companies and the startup needs to spend a lot of time. In fact, they typically have a dedicated person working side by side with the regulatory agency. A lot of times... Sharing information, educating them, and learning with them together. Lastly, but the most important is consumer acceptance. Meaning, all this is said and done, say in a decade or two. But if the consumer, for some reason, not accept this product and nobody is eating it or buying it, then we will be ha- having a, a big issue. So, for investors like myself, community builders, we are looking at the gaps in the whole ecosystem, depending on what time frame you look at. It is important that and we encourage a lot of the startups to be very open with the regulators and equally open to share what goes into the production process and also get actively get feedback from the consumer what concerns them so that we actually include or embed this in our whole culture and the production process so that when the end product comes up, it is something everybody accepts it.
0: Fascinating, Honman. Jadip is a marketing professor. He's trained to think about opportunities. I'm in the climate finance side, so I'm trained to think about risks. One thing that really concerns me, and I can't find a better person to ask than you, is that to what extent do you think this new food industry poses a risk for the millions of smallholder farmers and fishing folks across the world?
2: Very, very good question and very realistic questions, especially for investors and uh, regulators and also politicians, right? So this is a new food industry. And essentially, at this point of time, it's driven by alternative proteins. So it definitely, we're talking about opportunities and challenges from a technical, from a production perspective. But for the small farmholders and the fishing communities that you mentioned, the focus has been saying that, oh, there's a lot of risk, they're going to lose their job and so on. But we see it in a different way they are both opportunities and challenges now the concerns about potential risks are real but there's also potential for these communities to benefit by participating in this alternative protein supply chain and they could diversify the, their income source and aligning this with sustainability goals because the direction is definitely heading towards all companies are looking at how can they produce the same product, continue selling to the same consumers' segments in a more sustainable way? And we are offering them, this may not be the only solution, but we're offering them one solution that could help them stay in business and continue to employ their their farmers and their workers in this. Now, one thing is, there's various stakeholders in the industry, including uh, the government's could also help to address the challenges faced by these traditional agriculture and fishing companies by, or fishing communities by making sure that they are a proper plan in doing the transitioning. For example, some of the concerns that we, we heard a lot and we are working on that is during the transition period, production of alternative protein may lead to a temporary job displacement. As for example, livestock farming, then At the same time, there are opportunities in reskilling and retraining. If you look at a meat processing line, not everybody will lose their jobs because ultimately the whole cut meat that is produced, they still need to be packaged. So in the same way and prepared in the same way as the conventional meat that they have. The difference is that you won't have farms and you won't have cow roaming around, but you have bioengineers, you have PhD looking at cultivated technologies and so on. There will be actually plenty of new jobs created, especially in that particular community itself. There's also another part that is important, which is the rural community. So in the regions where it's heavily reliant on traditional traditional meat production. We actually work with governments and organizations to provide support for these communities to diversify their economies and encourage sustainable agricultural practices. There is actually a big part that is looking at circular economy, regenerative uh, economy. I think some of these communities were very good at what they are doing can focus on this area where else the mass and the bigger production actually could be presented with cellular agriculture so it's not easy we know that this is coming the whole focus should be working with the various stakeholders especially the governments the politicians and the industry new food industry like us to be very conscious that we all need to work together to make sure that we address the pain we also be inclusive in terms of creating the opportunities for the workers themselves who are affected. Ultimately, there will be some wins and losses. But for those workers whose job are replaced or displaced and won't come back again, I think also the possibility of their children I mean, actually taking over as a modern farmer. But in this sense, it won't be the challenges or the the difficulties that they face in the traditional way, but they are now working in a cleaner environment, requiring more knowledge and a different set of knowledge, but ultimately addressing the same issue. How can we produce healthy food, food that are inexpensive and able to feed the growing population that we have without causing all the damages to the environment, addressing climate change and so on?
1: When you were talking about the population at large, do you see a situation or a time coming soon when these types of new sources of protein will actually be substitutes for conventional meat and fish for the mass market, for people on low or even lower middle income? Especially given that people seem to be switching to cheaper ultra processed foods, would these new types of protein be healthier and affordable for the mass market? Very good questions,
2: but a few things came to my mind when you were talking about that. One of the things we do realize we tried, but we didn't succeed, which is we should not be telling the consumer what they should eat and what they should not eat. I think what we are trying to do here is to offer wider choice, choice you can get Healthier food, you can get less processed food, you can get food that are aligned with your beliefs and your values, and then let the consumer choose.
1: That's a great way to think about it. Yes, I completely agree. You know, uh, <laughs> people choice and this increases the choice set, is what you're saying.
0: reflect a little bit on what you said. I think uh, what I find fascinating, and I request our audience to sort of rewind that session and and listen to it a couple of times, is the challenges you talked about and the way you laid them out. Product, market, technology, consumer acceptance, and regulatory acceptance. Consumer acceptance coming last, but perhaps the most critical. One message is that in any new industry, there is hype in the beginning, things settle down, and then there are long-term investors who are there to build companies which hit milestones. Perhaps the simplest message that I got from this is that companies shouldn't tell what people should eat and what they should not. That job should be left to mothers and grandmothers.
2: (laughs) I'm not sure about leaving it to grandmothers or grandmothers, but we knew in the very early days that when we tried to tell the consumer what to eat. It didn't work for us so we will rather just focus on what we're doing good which is offering more nutritious, less expensive, high quality, consistent food and let them choose.
0: Exactly. Do you have any questions for your hosts?
2: I'm so glad we went through this. I mean, you have actually made me think through this and reflect on quite a few things as well. I'm always curious. You guys are in different parts of the world and so on. What are your thoughts about alternative protein? Will you see yourself increasing your consumptions of plant-based? I'm sure you have tasted or even regularly consumed, but what about cell-based uh, meat? Will you increase your consumption or even
1: had that? Certainly on plant-based meat, I've had quite a lot of experience of that. As you mentioned, you know, in Asia, there's this Chinese tradition going back, I think, centuries of using soy and other types of protein to substitute for meat. Coming to cell-based meat, I don't have much experience with it. But we have a lot of students uh, here in Cambridge who are engaged in startups in that space. Are There also insect protein startups. And I remember advising them initially saying, you know, this may be hard to convince consumers to consume. Why did not you consider it as animal feed? And that's the route uh, that they went down. So I still have questions about that because these things are so ingrained. They're so cultural. There's so much to do with norms and also evolutionary tendencies that we may have. I wonder how easy it might be to overcome some of those maybe normative barriers to adopting these very new types of alternative protein.
2: Yeah, that's great. Not easy, but somebody has to do it. And that's our job.
0: And if people want to get in touch with you, how should they?
2: Well, the best way is uh, message me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Just drop me a message. Uh, It may take a while, but usually, yeah.
0: With that, thank you very much, Hanman.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Wonderful talking to you.
0: If you like this podcast, do visit us on regainparadise.org, regainparadise.com. Uh, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn and you can also subscribe to these podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Google, Apple, and YouTube.